Galatians 4, 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and I'm the lead pastor here. And um, thanks for joining us. We're continuing our series through the book of Galatians. We are really, again, in the heart of... Um, Paul's really doctrinal argument about um, freedom and how we relate to the law and how we relate to to God, and uh, and so we're going to be digging in a little bit more this morning, specifically into this idea of the uh, of slavery and freedom in connection with our relationship with God. As we start off, I want to tell you the story of a few people. Um, you may relate to some of these guys. Change the name and, and a little bit of the context, um, not calling people out, but uh, they're kind of typical. Um, a guy named Donnie, who's a fitness nut. Donnie was um, a little bit of a nerd going through middle school, and uh, as he went through high school, and, and then realized after graduating that um, he could actually get in shape, and, and so he did, and he started setting goals. He became very athletic, and... and uh, had a specific, very specific body image that he started chasing, that he, that he thought, man, if I can, people started praising him and, and, and paying attention, and, and, and so he set these goals, and he would start chasing them down, and, and he would achieve them, right? The challenge is that um, he achieved the goal, <laughs> and once he got it, um, the restlessness didn't go away. I mean, it felt good for a little while, and, and then the problem was it just didn't the restlessness, the need, the so he just set new goals, right? But the problem was that every time he set a new goal, uh, it just wasn't as fulfilling as the last one. Um, actually, just became a little bit more disappointing, right? So he continued pursuing fitness, but fitness didn't uh, meet his needs the way he thought it would. It's the reality of it. Patty, Patty pursued a life of uh, self improvement, of moral self control. She was highly industrious and took a lot of pride in her ability to accomplish things. Um, you ever heard of the, the phrase Protestant work ethic? Um, she was the embodiment of the Protestant work ethic. In fact, she would often say, uh, I get more done by 5 a.m. than most people get done over the course of the entire day. And she was, in fact, telling the truth. Um, she raised her children in a very strict, demanding environment. She had very high expectations. And um, her kids didn't turn out bad. They didn't turn out great. I mean, honestly, they kind of turned out normal. <laughs> some of them went on to some success, and some went on to some failure, and, you know, there was, it was life. It was normal life, you know, and, 
As she aged, she found that her energy was fading and her productivity was flagging. And um, she just became surlier and surlier. I mean, honestly, I don't know that we would ever have described her as a purely happy woman. Um, But as long as she was productive, she was somewhat happy. But as she lost her ability to get things done, she lost her ability to, um, to be pleasant. There's Dave. Dave was the party guy. He was the life of the party. He was the kind of guy that was super loud, super friendly, the kind of guy that, that you just liked to be around. And, and he knew it, right? That was kind of what he did. He had this big personality, and in and, um, and his younger days, man, he was a partier. And so that he would go out and, and do this heavy drinking and, and be at these parties, and people would always pay for him to be there uh, because he was just, you know, it was like it wasn't a party unless Dave was there, you know? And uh, the problem was that, that Dave... Eventually got into his 30s and, and uh, continued trying to work low-paying jobs so that he could afford to hit the clubs and stay in the party circle. But his circle of friends was simply shrinking as they went and got jobs and got married and started thinking about family and, and the rest of that. And so he still spent his days talking big about how much fun it was to party and how he was looking forward to the next party and the weekend and, and, and really, you know, Tuesday night specials and Wednesday night specials and Thursday night specials. And pretty soon he's spending more and more of his time just drinking alone. And even when his friends are there, even when the fun is happening, it, it honestly is more mechanical and it lacks some joy. All right, we got three very, very different people here, right? You got Donnie, the fitness addict. You got Patty, the the moral, very the the paragon of virtue, and and you got Dave, the the party dude, right? Um, honestly, they'd be in very three very, very different social circles. They would have three very, very different looking lives. People would look at them and esteem them in very, very different ways. But the reality is all three of them have one very powerful thing in common. They are living their lives according to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. I don't know if you caught that phrase in our, in our text. Um, keep your Bible open because we're going to keep referring to it quite a bit over the course of the sermon. But I want to highlight it to you. Take a look at verses 8 through, through 9. It says, Formerly, when you didn't know God... You were enslaved to that which by nature are not God's, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? All right, this, is, this phrase is the heart of our passage, and we need to understand it, and it's in fact the second time that, that Paul has mentioned it in the broader passage. It's, it's an important idea to Paul, so it's important for us to actually understand what he, he means by it, right? Because once we understand it, it's going to help us understand why he's getting so worked up. I mean, he's getting worked up about some stuff that seems honestly somewhat trivial. Take a look at verses um, uh, 10 and 11 there, right? He's like, you observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. He's like getting all hyped up because they're, they're observing religious festivals, right? The days would be Sabbath days and the, the weeks and the months and the years are, are different festivals and years and Jewish holidays and, and, and these seasons, right? So they're, they're being kind of pulled into a liturgical calendar. He's like freaked out. He's like, you guys are like getting liturgical. <laughs> Why is he getting so hyper? Right? Is he so low church? He's like, no, we can't do anything high church. We can't have, you know, it's all tied to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world. 
what it comes down to is not what they're doing, but their motivations for doing it. In Romans 15, he told the Romans that observing days was no big deal. In fact, he said, some of you do it and some of you don't. Don't judge each other. Don't get, you know, don't think you're better. Just you each answer to God, answer to God and exercise your freedom to the glory of God, right? But here he's saying it's something incredibly dangerous. He's in fact afraid for the Galatians because of this. Well, here's the thing. Paul is talking about what motivates our behavior at the deepest level. So Paul is not talking about the behavior. He's talking about what motivates the behavior. Paul's talking about the elemental foundational principles that drive our behavior. And here's the thing, you guys. There are basic, fundamental, elemental principles that drive all of our behavior, that influence all of our behavior, and we don't really look at them very often. Those principles that drive us, those principles that influence us, those principles that lead our decision-making, those things that influence us, they're around us all the time, but we don't really pay attention to them because it's like a fish paying attention to water. You're just there. You just move in it. You don't think about it, and yet you're influenced by it. You're moved by it. It shapes you, right? And so there are these principles that surround us that influence our behaviors, right? Things so basic that we don't notice them. Things so basic, we don't even think about them or question them. But Paul is saying, look, there are principles that are influencing you that are weak and worthless. They can't do what you think they can do. They can't accomplish what you think they will accomplish. They can't produce or perform like we expect them to. All right, Donnie, my fitness guy, thought that achieving goals and getting a specific kind of body would make him happy. Once he actually started getting attention and people started praising him, and he's like, I don't have to be the nerd. I can actually be this dude, right? He thought once he got there, it would, it would make him happy. Patty thought that a self-controlled and productive life would, would deliver her into this realm of, of contentment and, and joy, right? Dave thought that if he could just make his life a never-ending flow of pleasure and party and, and excitement and attention, that it would result in joy and increasing happiness, right? But it didn't. And these guys are so typical. They describe people around us every day. And if we're honest, it describes us. Have you ever tasted this kind of disappointment? Where you really thought, if I just get there, if I just accomplish that, if I finally get to that place, if I can finally be that, then I'll be all right. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll finally be a success. Then I'll finally be worthwhile. Have you ever tasted the disappointment of actually achieving what you hoped to achieve and found that it didn't give you what you hoped it would give? We've all been there. When we followed a plan of self-improvement or self-fulfillment, only to find out that it didn't end up where we thought it would take us. It didn't give us what we thought it would give us. So what do we do? We start over. We set a new goal. We set out to do it again. We, we get diminishing returns. And we end up living, in the end, quiet lives of quiet despair. Continually pursuing, but never achieving. Continually buying into the lie, but never actually getting the result and the benefit because it is a weak and worthless elemental principle that cannot deliver on its promise. And yet we continue to go back. So to understand this, 
uh, I think it's going to be helpful for us to understand the beginning of our story and the context and why these things are in place. Why is life like this? It actually is explained very powerfully in the very beginning of the Bible. We're not going to turn there, but I want to reference it, right? In, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, at the beginning of the story, man, those, those chapters are, are, are so powerful to helping us understand the human condition, why we are the way we are, right? When we see Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see Adam and Eve created in the very image of God, by God for fellowship with God, right? God would come down in the cool of the evening and hang out with them. He gave them the gift of community and love and, and productivity and culture. And he said to them, exercise your gifts, expand your ability, grow in your experience of creation and of love and of community. And everything they had, they had received. Everything they enjoyed was a gift and they knew it. So that means everything they did was an act of gratitude. Everything they did was an act of worship. They had no need to perform for God because God had performed for them. And so they simply lived a life of productivity from rest. Does that make sense? It was an expression of gratitude, not pursuit. They operated from contentment, not for contentment. They operated from success, not for success. They operated from approval, not for approval. That state of existing in the presence of God, receiving love from God and, and expressing our love in gratitude and worship to God, that state theologians call a state of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that, that means peace, and it was often the, the greeting that, that Hebrews would use when they met one another. They would walk up and they would say, Shalom. And shalom is a, is a word that simply means peace, but it means so much more than just a lack of conflict. It, it means the peace that comes from everything being in balance. The wholeness that comes from everything having an integrity. It's describing life as life was meant to be, right? It is, it is wholeness and balance and purpose and integrity. We were created by the God of Shalom to live in Shalom. That balance, that wholeness, that integrity, that purpose. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. And instead of being dependent on God, they instead said, we will be like God. We will not live dependent. We will become independent. God will not be the center. We will be the center. God will not provide. We will provide. We will be like God. So they look at God and they say to God, we don't need you. We as your creatures will look only to the rest of creation to find what we need, to discover what we want to find our purpose, our wholeness, our security, and our comfort. We will now longer, no longer look to God, the creator. We will look to the creation. So catch this, you guys, because this is vital to understand. Our sin separated us from the shalom of God because it separated us from God. There's a, there's a division. Our sin separates us. God's holy, and, and as a result of his holiness, we are now separated from God and all of his life and love, and right? He, he is now in a position of, of the offended one. We have rebelled against him, and, and he has to judge our sin. So it separates us from the shalom of God, but it doesn't turn off our need for shalom, right? Our desire for shalom doesn't just turn off. It has to shift from God to something else for fulfillment. 
So what that means is that our need for wholeness and purpose and integrity and strength and purpose, all of those needs, instead of being fulfilled in our relationship with God, are now being fulfilled in our relationship with the creation. We're looking to things that aren't God to be God for us. We're looking for things that aren't God to do for us what only God can do. This is the heart of what's called idolatry, where we look to things that aren't God to act as God in our lives. And we do this all the time, you guys. We do it in our jobs. Our, our ability to advance or to gain praise or to gain status, we do it in our relationships. If I could just be loved, if I could just be cherished, if I could just conquer one more, if I could just be loved by that specific person, our status, our accomplishments, our pleasures, we're continually looking to things and saying to them, meet my deep need for shalom. Meet my deep need for significance, for meaning, for purpose. And they can't. They can't, right? But we still look at them and we say to them, you will satisfy my deepest desire. And when we get them and they don't, we just look to the next thing. We have no other choice. We just keep moving. That thing didn't do it, so there's got to be another so we keep chasing. Two things happen when we do this. The first is that we are ultimately disappointed. We are ultimately, progressively and ultimately disappointed. <laughs> what I mean is that it's not immediate. Like, like my friend Donnie, who the, the fitness addict, man, when he realized he could get in shape and he started pursuing this goal and he had this idea of the perfect body image and he was chasing it down, there was a sense of anticipation and joy. There was a, a flush that came, like this rush of, it's like, like during that season where he was working toward the goal, you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't have spoken sense to him. He was just convinced, when I get there, man, it's going to be everything I had ever hoped. I will finally have people looking at me and praising me. I will finally have the attention and the affection of women. I will finally be able to be that person I've always wanted to be. I'll feel better about myself. I'll be, right? So in, in the rush of getting there, there's no way, right? So he's not disappointed at that point. The disappointment comes when he actually accomplishes it. And he realizes that it doesn't give him what he hoped it would. And that he has to keep chasing and keep pursuing and setting new goals. And they just don't last. So he's disappointed and increasingly disappointed because every time he sets a new goal, he's simply disappointed again because accomplishing it never gives him what he hopes it'll accomplish. So we are set up for progressive and ultimate disappointment. And often it's not until we realize our goals that we realize that our goals don't satisfy so we have to set new goals. The second thing that happens is that we get enslaved to what we pursue. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 8, where he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You're looking to things that aren't God to be God for you. And when you're chasing that thing down, it becomes your God. And you're enslaved to it. Donnie becomes a slave to fitness. Patty becomes a slave to self-discipline and morality. And Dave becomes a slave to the party and to people's praise and to the recreational drugs that he chases down. Right? We become enslaved. Think about it. What controls your desires controls your behavior. That's slavery. 
what controls your desires controls your behavior. We have this really weird idea in our country that freedom is doing whatever we want. That is a logical fallacy. It doesn't make any sense at all, right? What if you're not free to choose what you want? Right? What about the drug addict who has an unending supply of drugs? That's not freedom. We look at that and we're like, that is the epitome of slavery. And yet they get to do, they get to indulge their desire to to their own self-destruction, right? That's not freedom. You're not free until you can actually control your desires, not just your ability to fulfill those desires. That's slavery, not freedom. Because we're continually chasing things to feed an appetite that honestly we can't feed. Through our success and our relationships and our accomplishments and and all of these things, we are simply on a treadmill trying to get someplace we're not going. That's not freedom. It's the epitome of slavery. We are chained to the very thing that cannot deliver, continually looking to it to give us what it can never give, looking for it to feed an appetite it can't feed or scratch an itch it can't reach. but that's the only option we have in a world without God. When we are designed by the God of Shalom to experience the Shalom of God, and we have not the ability to reach God, we have no other choice but to be enslaved to our desires. You can't turn the desires off. They're going to keep chasing something down, and so we end up becoming idolaters, looking to things that aren't God to be God for us. See, we were created to love God and to be loved by God. That's the essence of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be fully, totally dependent on God. We were never created to be independent from God. God was the center. God was the foundation. And we were designed to to rest on that foundation, to, to revolve around that center, to receive everything from him to not have to earn anything from him, and to simply operate in gratitude and praise and joy, knowing that we are loved by the God who is the very essence of love itself. Adam and Eve were cut off from the shalom of God and their rebellion, and we are cut off from the shalom of God. But the desires for that shalom did not go away. They did not dry up. They did not lessen. They simply shifted. And so what ends up happening is we've created a system. We have put principles in place as humans to try to get the shalom of God without God. These elementary basic principles of life, right? And, and I think they're manifest through four very simple urges, right? The need for success, the need for comfort, the need for control, and the need for approval. And I think some of us are going to be driven by some more than others, right? Some of you are driven by success. If you just succeed more, then you'll be worth more. If you can just get the corner office, if you can just get the car everybody envies, if you just get the, the, the position or the praise or the, if you can just get there, then you will finally, you think, be able to rest. Some of you, it's about comfort. If I could just have this kind of life, if I could just have this lake house, if I could just have this pleasure, if I could just finally have this, then life would be fulfilling. Then life would finally be satisfying. For some of you, it's control. If I could just control all the loose ends of my own heart and of my life and of all the hearts and lives of the people around me, then life would finally make sense and I would find some balance. For some of you, it's approval. 
If I could just get these people to praise me, if I could just get this specific person to think highly of me, if I could just finally get them to approve and love me, then I'll measure up. Then I'll finally believe I'm worthwhile. You guys, this is the subtle and ever-present message of this world system. And here's the thing. This is human, not American. You're going to find it in every world culture differently because every culture is different. Right? It's, going to, it's going to show up in a, in a Japanese culture fundamentally differently. It's going to show up in the American culture, right? One is, is collectivist and values the whole. One is individual and values the individual, but you're going to find the same things ultimately driving the same root principles that drive it and lead people to an empty pursuit of things that cannot satisfy. These are the elementary principles of the world, and they are weak and they are worthless, Because they always fail and they never deliver. But it's really hard to get away from them. It's really hard to get away because they are so foundational to our way of thinking. The heart of our rebellion is a deep desire. Remember, the heart of our rebellion is a deep desire to be like God. The heart of our rebellion is a deep desire to say, I will be like God, right? I will be independent, I will be strong. That desire resides in what the Bible calls the flesh. Um, The flesh, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about the body, the physical body. Um, It's talking about that part of us that is determined to find life outside of God. That part of us that is determined to ultimately find the shalom of God outside of relationship with God, that says to God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I will be the master of my own ship. I will be the captain of my own soul, right? It is that restless rebellion that lies at the heart of our being that ultimately says, I can do this on my own. You are not the boss of me. (laughs) And as a result, since we all have that broken peace within us, we have collectively as humanity created a system that is designed to replace God. And that system is called the world. The Bible often refers to this system as, as the world or being worldly. And, and, and a lot of times Christians use this in, in loaded ways. Well, I don't want to be worldly. And what they mean by that is, well, I don't want to go to movies. I don't want to be seen in places where they do sinful things. I don't want to drink alcohol or, or wear non-Christian t-shirts, right? Mine has to have a cross on it, right? Why? Because those things are worldly, Right? Some of you who are from Christian subcultures, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This can become the most onerous like legalism ever where it's like, oh my goodness, you got to avoid even the appearance of worldliness, right? So you better not even have a secular you know, CD sitting on the seat of your car. It's craziness because here's the thing, you guys, worldliness, we're talking about the system. Worldliness is about doing life without God. And honestly, some people have figured out the best way to do life without God is be really, really good. Like if I can become moral enough, God doesn't have to show up in my life. (laughs) Some people use their morality as a way to avoid God. Worldliness is not about um, sin per se. Worldliness is is that, that thing that describes the evil within us, within our system, that... um. It's designed to meet our need for shalom outside of relationship with God. There are a lot of very religious people who are trying to meet their need for shalom without ever actually having a living, 
abiding, submissive, joyful relationship with God. A lot of people who know a lot about God without knowing God. A lot of people who know a lot about religion without ever having a heart that is broken and humble, joyful submission to God, right? Worldliness. It's that system we've created to make us independent of God. Things that take the place of God and are designed to, to feed that appetite, to scratch that itch, right? So there are things in, in, in this world that we would call worldly that are, that are truly evil. They're abusive and they're, they're violent and, and, and they are ugly. There are other things that we look at and they, they don't necessarily look evil on the surface, but they're worldly because they are systems designed to actually replace God with a, a system of pursuit that, that allows us to get what only God can give from things that aren't God. Now, there's, the Bible says there's a third player in this mix, and that, that's actually Satan. And for some of you, it's like, oh, okay, now we're getting weird. Here comes that spiritual stuff. All right, bottom line, if God could create humans, yes, he could also create unseen beings that are, that are, that are intelligent and, and, and have volition and act. And, and that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God has created this unseen world of beings that are called angels. Some of those angels rebelled against God and became what we call demons uh, in the same way that humans rebelled, right? The devil is a real being that wants nothing more than to rob God of his glory. He, at his heart, wants the very same thing we want. He wants to be like God, independent of God, not dependent on God. He wants to be equal to God in authority and in glory and in purpose, right? And he can't. And so what he's trying to do is ultimately rob God of his glory. If he can't make himself like God, he's trying to knock God down, in a sense, to his own level. These three forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil, work together. They're moving in the same direction. They're ultimately trying to achieve the shalom of God without relationship with God, right? The devil promises it and deceives it and deceives us. The world promises it and doesn't deliver it. Our flesh craves it and pursues it, even though we know we're going to be disappointed. Think about it this way. You guys ever um, been in one of those round pools where you walk around the outside and you kind of create a whirlpool? The answer is yes, if you've ever been in a round pool. You have, you have done this, okay? Um, and, and, and you walk around the outside, and it creates this kind of suction toward the middle, and it's a lot of fun if you have little kids because they kind of just disappear into the center, right? Um, not for long, not, not, not forever, but you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. It just adds a little bit of excitement. Those things are really boring, those little pools that are just sitting there. And so you just create a little of excitement by creating this whirlpool, right? And you know as well as I do that if you get more than one person walking around the outside, it gets way more effective and way more fun. Right? If you can get two or three adults going, like really chugging around the outside, that pretty soon it's like the whole thing is shaking and vibrating. There's this black hole of suction in the center, and the kids are screaming in delight and terror. That's what happens with the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are all moving in the same direction. They're all working toward the same thing, and it creates this pull toward the center. But the center of that circle is not God. It is the pursuit of shalom without God. And so when you get sucked fully into the center, you're sucked into the eternal darkness and separation from the shalom of God. It is the fulfillment of our desires. It is the, when you finally get sucked into the middle of it, all deception is wiped away and you see that you are completely full of desires that will never be fulfilled. You are full of cravings that will never be met. You are driven crazy by an itch you will never be able to scratch. You will spend your entire life suffering, separated from the God you were created to enjoy. That's, what the, that's what's at the center of that whirlpool, right? And if God didn't intervene, we'd all be damned to be sucked down into that darkness. 
And that's why Jesus was sent, right? Jesus was sent to pluck us out of that pool, to rescue us from our our own self-destructive path of rebellion and to give us forgiveness and to give us new life, right? Jesus died for our sins and rose again a new life so that we could be forgiven and and be given a new life, right? Because the bottom line was we were enslaved. That's what he's saying, right? As an unbeliever, man, you're enslaved in that system. Those elemental principles, the world, the flesh, and the devil working together to create this system of self-deception and self-destruction. You were being controlled by the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world. Now, some of you are going to be pretty sharp at this point. You're paying attention to the text, and you're like, hey, Steve, wait a minute, man. The Galatians weren't going back to their paganism. They became believers in Jesus out of a really pagan environment. They had pagan temples where they really did horrible things. In those pagan temples, man, it was abusive. It was violent. They, they, it, was, it, was, it was perverted. It, it, it had everything from, from, from rape to, to incest to murder. But they weren't going back to that. They were going to the law. The Judaizers were coming in. These guys were coming in from Jerusalem and saying, hey, it's a good thing you believed in Jesus. Now add to Jesus circumcision and obeying the law. They weren't going back to paganism. They were picking up their Bibles. And turning to the Ten Commandments. And turning to the Old Testament law and saying, okay, we've believed in Jesus. Now let's get down to the real work of obedience and growing through self discipline and self-control. They weren't going back to the worldliness of paganism. They were turning to the law. But here's the thing. They were turning um, the law into something that worked right along with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Worked right along with the the fundamental, the basic weak and worthless elements of the world. Because here's the thing, you guys. The law was never given to pull you out of that pool. The law was never given to pull you out of that pool. It was given to make it worse. And we've studied this in previous weeks. But the law basically came in and said, look, you think you can be independent of me? You think you can do life without me? You think you can find shalom apart from my presence, apart from my blessing? I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a chance to prove it. In fact, I'm going to give you a system to explore that. Here's a law. Keep it and you'll be blessed. Break it, and you'll be cursed. And that curse will suck you into darkness. So the law does two things, you guys. It, it names our failure, and it condemns our failure. That's what the law does. It names our failure, and it condemns our failure. So in that sense, it works with the basic elemental principles of the world. It doesn't give life. Let me give you a very real example. How many of you... Have ever struggled with anxiety? I see that hand. I see that hand. My hand's up there with you, man. Um, how many of you have struggled with anxiety and, and you've gone to your little your, your, your prayer circle and you've been, oh man, really struggling with anxiety, you guys. And you had somebody who was really, really helpful. And they said, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Right? Put it up there. Here you go. Don't be anxious for anything, right? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. All right, the solution for anxiety. Are you ready? It's revolutionary. You got it? Here it is. 
Stop it. Just stop it. Be anxious for nothing. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you being obedient? Come on. Am I helping your anxiety? Is this honestly, what's happening? What happens to your anxiety when I come to you and I say, stop it. And if you don't, obviously you're either not a Christian or you're doing something wrong. You better get it right. Be anxious for nothing. That's what it says. Knock it off. What, are you not praying? Haven't you given your list of thanksgivings to God? Right? Where's the peace of God that's going to guard your heart and mind? If it's not there, it's not God's fault. It must be your fault. Have you ever experienced this? This is the power of law. This is the power of law. The law comes in, identifies the sin, and condemns it. It doesn't fix it. Right? If you're anxious, stop it. And if you're still anxious, you just suck. You're not a good Christian. You're not going to measure up. Hmm. And all it does is make it worse, right? It just stirs up your anxiety. It makes your anxiety worse. Right? That's what the, the Bible says. The law was given to stir up sin. That's what it does. It doesn't fix it. The law can't rescue you from the whirlpool of self-effort because it makes it worse, right? The, the law is like the turbo boost on the whirlpool. You know what I'm saying? Like you got three dudes and you're doing really well and you put this machine on the outside and it mechanically, hydraulically pumps the water at like super turbo power. The world, the flesh, and the devil all work hard to get that water spinning really fast. The law comes in, oh, it just makes it deadly. Makes it deadly. You guys ever been in one of those um, lazy rivers? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, man, I so want to go to a lazy river, right? I mean, you just, you lay on this thing and you're in the sun and you float. That's all you do. I mean, there's nothing else to do in that thing, right? I mean, you could get off, but man, let's get back on this. It's boring. It's just, best thing in the world is just to lay there, right? Where's it going? I don't care. It's just going, Right? That's us, man. Listen, that's us. We're on the lazy river and we think everything's cool. But the lazy river are those weak and worthless elemental principles of the world and it's taken us to hell. And we're just chilling in the sun like, yeah, okay. I'll just float along. So God in his grace gave a law and it turns the lazy river into a whitewater rapid. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm drowning here. I can't swim. I'm helpless. God, why'd you do this to me? And he looks at you and he says, I did it because I love you. I love you enough to wake you up to your danger. I love you enough to wake you up to your helplessness. I love you enough to let you know where you are and where you're going, man. Your situation is urgent and you are in precarious danger. You are self-deceived. The law comes in, stirs it up. Does God want us to get sucked down? No. But God does want us to wake up, to see the urgency, to recognize our need and our helplessness. You guys, the law is good and holy and righteous. It is good and holy and righteous, but it does not give life. 
It identifies and condemns sin. It is the turbo boost on on the weak and worthless elements of the world. It works right along with the law of the flesh and the devil. So you guys, we don't need law. We need something very, very different, right? We need the deliverance of grace. We don't need the law to come in and, 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 and turn the, the thing into this churning white water. We need the grace of salvation. We need the deliverance to a different center. So we're not centered on our independence from God, but delivered once again to the freedom of being centered on God, dependent on God, centered in a way that our desire is being pointed toward God for both salvation and shalom. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Take a look at it this way. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your requests made known to God. Let's read this in a very different way. You struggle with anxiety. What you need is not a law that tells you not to do it. You need an antidote to the poison. You need a deliverance from the turbulence. And you know where that deliverance is? It's in grace. It's in grace, right? See, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, don't turn that into a task. Like, I need to find five things to be thankful for, and then God's going to deliver me from my anxiety. What he means is you need to sit in the blessings of God long enough that you actually have the birth of gratitude in your heart. You need to let grace have its proper working in your life, and when it does, then you will actually be delivered from anxiety. Not because you've accomplished it for God, but because grace has birthed it in you. Do you see the difference? It is a fundamentally different way to approach life. He's saying, don't be enslaved to the weak and worthless elements of the world. Stop turning everything into a task to be done. Because you are invited by the God of this universe to be known and to be loved. God doesn't want you to perform. He wants you to rest to be dependent and grateful and moving in worship. And that's why he sent Jesus to pull us out. That's why he sent grace, man, to yank us out of that pool and to put us on a different path, right? We were helpless. God sent a Savior so that we could once again be centered on the shalom of God, not our attempt to find shalom apart from God. You know, Jesus said crazy, crazy things. He said, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who eats of me will never hunger again. Right? He said, I am the water of life. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. It was such weird stuff that people got like offended and walked away and were like, you're crazy. You know what he's saying? He's saying you have deep, deep appetites that cannot be satisfied in any other place but in relationship with me. And those appetites will drive your behavior. So the key is not to try to change the behavior. It is to recenter your appetites. It is to learn to worship me to be dependent on me, to rest in me instead of performing for me. That's what, look at verse 9, you guys. That's where Paul's going with this, man. In verse 9, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements of the, of the world? Now that you know God or or that God knows you, what does that mean that now that God knows you? It's talking about knowing in a biblical sense. You know what I mean by that, right? Adam knew Eve. It doesn't mean he knew her name, right? They were intimate. 
When the Bible talks about knowing, it talks about relationship and intimacy. When it talks about that you know God, or rather that God knows you, what it means is that God has a relationship with you through Christ. He loves you. He delights in you. He wants to walk with you in the cool of the evening in the same way he did with Adam and Eve. He wants you to be centered on him, to be dependent on him, to receive from him, to stop performing for him. See, after you've tasted that love, you start to to get a small taste of what it means to be truly satisfied. To actually have your need for shalom met by the source of shalom himself. All that is delightful, all that is beautiful, all that is powerful, all that is meaningful is in Christ. How can you jump back into the whirlpool of self-effort and self-focus that pool of ultimate disappointment after you have tasted the bread of life, the water of life? How can you go back to slavery after you have tasted freedom? How can you go back to performance instead of dependence? It breaks Paul's heart. It breaks Paul's heart. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you. I beg you. I plead with you. Become as I am as I also have become as you are. In verse 19, he, he compares himself to a mother giving birth <laughs> a second time, right? In verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's talking about how, how, how he had labored and it was struggling and suffered that they might come to know Christ and to grow in Christ. And now he's watching his children turn back to the weak and worthless elements of the world, to performance and away from grace. And he says, I'm suffering like a mother who has to give birth a second time. I'm passionate about this because you're going to slavery. You're moving toward death. Everything in me wants you to be blessed. Everything in me wants you to be free. So walk in that freedom. Walk in that joy. Don't go back. He says, become as I am in the same way as I became as you are. It's an interesting phrase. And, and there's a little bit of confusion because some people are like, well, that sounds like he's just like the Judaizers. The Judaizers, these false teachers showed up and said, you need to become like we are if you're going to be pleasing to God. You need to perform like we do and act like we do, circumcision like we do, obey the law like we do, right? Now, Paul's saying, no, you've got to be like me. But think about what he says in verse 10, right? In verse 10, he goes on and he says, or verse 9, but now you know that you have come to know God. I'm sorry. Verse 13, you know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you the first time. So he's saying the first time I spent time in Galatia, I had a, I had a problem, right? This thing that's called the thorn in the flesh, uh, this bodily ailment, right? We don't know what it is but it's something that dis- disabled him. And so he had to spend time in Galatia. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So as then what became, what then has become of the blessing that you felt? What he's saying is, look, man, when I was there, I had this, this, this weakness that forced me to be with you, this dependence. And you didn't despise me. You didn't reject me. You, you met me in my dependence. And Theologians have debated what that is. Some have proposed that it was a debilitating sin, some that it was a physical ailment, potentially malaria or an eye problem. Um, Some people think it was an eye problem because he says the Galatians are willing to pluck out their very eye and and give it. We don't know what it was, and it doesn't really matter. (laughs) The point is that he was incredibly weak and dependent, and they met him in that place of dependence. He was there utterly dependent. And they were to him like Jesus Christ. 
You met me in my dependence. You loved me in my dependence. You joyfully met me in that place. You were like Jesus. Do you remember what that was like, Galatians? Do you remember in verse 15, he's like, didn't you remember? What has become of this blessing you felt? See, when you're in that place where of, of mutual dependence, there was a blessing. The Bible uses that word blessed a lot. It's kind of a weird word. It's only used really in the Bible. We don't walk around saying, hey, have a blessed day unless you're a Christian. Um, and then it's kind of weird outside of Christian circles, just telling you so you know. Um, but the, word, the Bible uses this word a lot, and, it, and it's a powerful word. Blessed are the meek, right? That's what Jesus said. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Right? Blessed, this is the idea that there's a blessing for man. What does it mean when it talks about the blessed man? It's a word that describes what it's like to be rooted in shalom. The blessed man is somebody who's rooted in shalom. They have the wholeness, the fullness, the blessing, the balance, the integrity of the blessing of God, the shalom of God. The blessed man has his deepest needs for love, significance, security, and comfort met in God. He is free then to enjoy creation instead of being enslaved to creation because he's not looking to creation to be God for him. He is the blessed man. Paul is saying, do you remember what it was like to be mutually dependent? Do you remember what it was like when I was utterly dependent on you? There was a blessing there, a joy, a freedom that came from love instead of of pride that came from performance. Do you remember that? He's like, let's go back to that, you guys. Become like I was, utterly dependent. Become like I was when I was with you, utterly in need. And in the same way you met my need, God will meet yours. Stop trying to perform. Stop trying to prove yourself. Stop trying to measure up and rest in the fact that Christ has done it for you and just receive the blessing. Let him love you and it will change your heart. That's how God wants you to come, broken. Not like the false teachers, verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, the... They made much of you, but for no good purpose. That's the false teachers. They want to shut you out, out from grace, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, but not only when I'm present with you. They puff you up so that you can puff them up. That's the path of of self-effort, right? Ultimately, it's about measuring up. So you, you find people to tell you measure up, to reflect how you measure up, to make you feel good about you. You start using people instead of loving people. You surround yourself with people who are going to make you feel good about you, and they do the same thing. Right? The feel your feed your own need for importance. That can't meet your that's that's the weak and worthless principles of the world. It can't meet your need for shalom. It is the whirlpool of performance centered living that will suck you down into the blackness and the darkness of self centered life. You guys don't do it. That's what he's saying. Don't do it. Don't sell out. Don't give in. Don't abandon Jesus in the name of Jesus. Don't do it. Grace is so much better. All right, you guys, I'm going to put some questions on the screen, some reflection questions to lead us as we move into a time of response. I ask you to pray. Let God speak to you in this time. We're going to share communion in a moment. Before we do, though, let's take a look at these questions. First, where are you turning to law instead of grace and dependence? In other words, where are you trying to perform? Where are you trying to prove yourself? Where are you trying to measure up? Where are you trying to, to labor for what you can't achieve, to earn what you can't, Right? Flowing out of that, where are you looking for shalom apart from relationship with God? 
And let's just be honest, how's that working for you? Is it your job? Some status? Some accomplishment? Some relationship? Where are you genuinely, where are you pursuing the shalom of God outside of relationship with God? Is it your moral performance, your religion? And let's be honest, how's that working for you? Because I guarantee you it's not. And then that leads us to number three. What will it take for you to trust God more than you trust yourself? Because God's already given you the best thing he can give. The demonstration of his love through the sacrifice of his son. Could he give you a more powerful invitation to love? A more powerful guarantee that you will be loved when you come. A more clear statement that you are unconditionally accepted based on the work of Christ and not your own. It is an invitation to rest instead of perform. What will it take for you to trust God more than you trust yourself or your accomplishments or your world or whatever it is you're looking to that's not God to be God for you? You guys, let's let God speak to us because we ultimately need God to free us from these weak and worthless elemental principles of the world. We need God to not only pull us out of the whirlpool for salvation, but continually pull us out so we can daily be delivered into the freedom and the joy and the power and the balance and the wholeness of Christ. Let's pray. We'll take communion in a moment. Father God, we thank you that you are such a good God, that you love us. Not because we're lovable, but because you choose to love us. And because you choose to love us, we are made lovable. I thank you for that grace. I thank you, Lord, that we are invited not to perform for you, but to rest in the fact that you love us, to delight in relationship with you. And I pray for us, Lord, that we would not easily, willingly pursue the weak and worthless elements of this world as a substitute for the genuine power of grace.